This is an ABC podcast. This podcast contains language, adult language, rude adult language. Don't listen if you're not allowed. This is part three of the Alice Fraser trilogy, Empire, Act Two. I did the MS Readathon as a kid. I loved reading. I was one of those kids that read books in trees like an Enid Blyton asshole. And I, I did the MS Readathon. You know the MS Readathon? It's like a competitive book fight. <laughs> it serves the dual function of raising money for multiple sclerosis research and teaching nerd kids that they're going to be okay. <laughs> I was very good at it. Uh, I was very good at reading. And uh, I won a typewriter. <laughs> Which would have been an amazing prize if it had been the 60s. <laughs> Instead of the 90s when they had already invented computers. <laughs> and I won a trip on the bounty with the cast of Home and Away. <laughs> Which would have been an amazing prize if I was the kind of kid that watched Home and Away. <laughs> Instead, it was just these people giving me A4 signed photographs of their own faces. I still have a stack of them at home, signed photographs of the 90s cast of Home and Away. I have no idea who any of them are. Mm. Mm, Toadfish, if that is your real name. Oh, wait, he's... um. I know! I just wanted to see if you'd come in. I don't know how to be in the real world. I have, I have four degrees and zero street smarts. I don't know how to do normal things. I don't know how to enjoy normal things that normal people like. I can't enjoy dogs. I mean, I like dogs. Don't get me wrong. I like dogs. That's what we evolved them for. But I just think when I meet a dog, well, I wouldn't like you if you were a person. Like, not the shitting everywhere thing. I know plenty of lovely people who shit everywhere. <laughs> It's more that they're such sycophants. It's like, if they were a real friend in your real life, you'd be like, whoa, back off, get some self-esteem. <laughs> they're like your super keen Christian friend. He's like, oh, let's go to the park. And then you go to the park and it's all fun and nice. And then you see a gay couple and you're yanking on the leash. It's very... <laughs> I can't enjoy ice cream. I can't, I, I, too much in my head. I can't enjoy ice cream. Someone says, do you want an ice cream? I'm like... What if, uh, how does feminism feel about ice cream? How does Marxism feel about ice cream? What are the ethics of joy in a world full of pain? <laughs> and by then it's melted. <laughs> the one thing I have in the world that is not street smarts but protects me is the feeling that I'm going to be fine. I was walking in New York uh, uh, very late at night. I was coming home for a gig. I was in the Bronx. I was in a park. I was on my mobile phone. All the stuff you're meant to do. <laughs> and a guy came up to me and he went, Hey, you got any money? And I said, Oh, sorry, mate. Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> and then I got three steps further and realised that he had had a knife. <laughs> but he was so confused. <laughs> But I got away with it. My superpower is being an idiot. <laughs> I, I wish my superpower was like saying the right thing at the right time, but I can't do it. I can't do conflict. Like clearly to the point where a man with a knife is invisible to me because I'm like, I don't want to have a fight. My dad doesn't avoid conflict, but he kind of sticks to his guns. He knows what's proper and what's right. Dad sat us down when we were about 11 and told us... Uh, your mum has MS 
and told us what that was. It's a, a degenerative neurological condition and he said, you know, she's had it since before you were born. She was very good. She looked after you until now and now it's our turn to look after her. At the age of 10, you're like, oh yeah, I'm double figures. <laughs> I can handle this shit. The kids in Narnia had a kingdom at that age. I can learn how to cook. And then I realised I had one of those quantum physics looking back in time moments because I realised that I was not that good at the MS readathon. I read a lot of books. I'd go to people's houses, oh, can you give me money? And mum would be standing in the back of the room on her walking stick. <laughs> I was the MS mafia. <laughs> you would give a lot more money to Greenpeace if they were dragging dead whales down the street. I give money to charity because I believe in supporting the cause of international students. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My dad doesn't avoid conflict, but he kind of sticks to his guns. He knows what's proper and what's right. When uh, mum was sick, um, when she was alive, they, used, they did this MS study on the impact that someone being sick had on the family. And uh, mum and dad went into the hospital to do this survey and they asked dad a number of questions. And they said, uh, dad, what did they say? They said, question one, between one and five, how would you rate the strength of your relationship? We're married. Y yes, but how would you rate the strength of your marriage with one being the lowest and five being the highest? We're married. It's a binary. <laughs> and they said... All right, uh, qu uh, question two. Do you ever wish that your wife had not fallen ill? Wish? Wish. I don't think like that. I'm not a child. <laughs> and they said... Okay, question three. I uh, have a question. Yes? Between one and five... How much are all of the questions going to be like this? Uh, five? Well, that'll do. I was just leaving. <laughs> and he just walked out. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. And I, I think about that a lot. I wish I could be fighty and sassy like that. I wish I had the kind of chutzpah that I... I mean, sometimes I just want to be a fun, dumb slapstick comedian. I want to put a, a hundred banana skins on the stage and fall over for an hour. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't know if I like what I do. I mean, obviously I like what I do, otherwise this would be a severely masochistic exercise. <laughs> but I just, I, sometimes I want to be dumb and fun and I can't. When I was eight, my dad told me I walked with the dignity of a white elephant. <laughs> you can't overcome that kind of positive conditioning. <laughs> Sometimes I want to be a political comedian because sitting in the audience of a political comedian makes you feel amazing. Doesn't it? Just someone telling you your opinions but better. <laughs> it's like an Instagram filter for your own bigotries. Mmm, <laughs> Trump is an asshole. <laughs> Aren't I amazing? I can't do that. I can't talk about Trump because saying his name makes him stronger. <laughs> And also there are so many good comedians doing stuff about that that I don't know where I would go. What would I do that was even original or interesting? I'd have to be ironically pro-Trump and that's how he won. <laughs>
Sometimes I want to be one of those edgy guy comedians that's like, yeah, pow, 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 penis guns, pow, 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 take my penis guns. You know that? But I can't do that, I've got bad aim. <laughs> you know, the equal, equal opportunity offenders, oh, pow, 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 making the baby Jesus cry. I'm like, baby, cry for a lot of reasons. <laughs> he could just have gas. <laughs> so what you're left is with this weird, existential, <laughs> fucking, occasionally musical comedy. <laughs> so I'm going to sing you a, a song, if you like. Yes? <laughs> Who, does anyone want to volunteer to have a song sung to them? <laughs> yes, you sir. What's your name? Andre. Andre. Pleased to meet you, Andre. This is a song. It's a love song. I love you for exactly who you are A man in a seat who's bought a ticket or is a reviewer <laughs> I want to be the me I see reflected in your eyes Aside from that you mean nothing to me Not in a bad way, I just don't know you at all guys But you love me for who I am, I'll love you for who you are Someone who's half watching this, half wondering where he left his car. If you have a car, I don't know, that's kind of my point. But I need you to need me, it's how I pay the rent. And you need to enjoy this for it to be worth the money that you spent. There's a certain authenticity inherent in this exchange. I give you my heart and you give me your pocket change. Plus Ticketmaster handling fees. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> Bloody middlemen. <laughs> but oh, I really love you, I really do, I mean. The love we have is as pure as any love can be. Given that all love is transactional, at least this is honest and constrained by the clear parameters of a contract. <laughs> Seriously, unconditional love is explaining away a black eye at a family picnic. <laughs> These 55 minutes are all that we have. In 15 minutes this moment will end. Please tell your friends or tweet about the show. Maybe we can have this moment with them. Thank you. I learned this the other day, that you're not meant to say developing countries anymore because it uh, implies a Western imperialist idea of uh, progress. And part of me thinks, of course, language is important. The language you use can make people feel sad or bad, but also I'm pretty sure they're probably too busy dying of diseases we already have cures for to worry too much about what <laughs> we call them. This is a show about discomfort, right, and about uh, gut reactions and about good and evil and knowing the difference and I just think if you live, of course, if you live in an environment of oppression a word that is used can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Right? If someone's living a really shitty life the word you use can be the straw. Why do you blame that straw? <laughs> Why do you blame the last straw rather than the 40,000 previous <laughs> straws? I don't know. If somebody is offended by the fact that you are calling them a shithead because someone is constantly shitting on their head. <laughs> I don't think the solution 
is to stop calling them. <laughs> I think the solution is to move them, ideally slightly to the left. <laughs> yeah, political comedy! Also, why is a camel carrying straw in the desert? Where's he getting the grass? <laughs> Unless it's drinking straws, in which case also very insensitive. Sorry, sometimes I carry a metaphor too far. <laughs> like a camel <laughs> carrying water in the desert. <laughs> I uh, try to talk about camels because camels make me uncomfortable. Um, my aunt, who was the boss of the family, she told us all these stories, and I'm not sure whether it was because she didn't want to talk about really scary boogeymen, but every story she ever told us as a kid, the bad guy was the camel. <laughs> She never described what it was, it was just the camel. It was this sinister, dark presence. Don't go outside, the camel will get you. You know, eat your vegetables or the camel will come. You're more likely to be raped by a camel you know, that kind of thing. It's funny how quickly something you don't understand can become a terrifying villain in the dark. Dad took us to the zoo once and he asked us if we wanted to see the camels and we freaked out. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what it is, I don't like it, I don't know what it is, I it's like gay marriage, you know. Uh, <laughs> Finally, he convinced us to have a look and we're like, no, it doesn't affect traditional marriage at all. It's just a lumpy horse. It's not even as scary as goats. What are goats, anyway? Bloody limber tree-climbing snake-eyed donkeys. Make up your mind, are you a cat or a horse? <laughs> anyway, Sue loved stories. She loved telling stories. Uh, my dad didn't like it. He didn't, like, he didn't believe in lying to children. I remember running into him as a kid and being like, Dad, death. And he said, yes, Alice, life is suffering and then you die. Happy fifth birthday. <laughs> my dad didn't believe uh, in, in telling children lies. My dad you know, never told us Santa was real. But parents get so uncomfortable when their kids find out that Santa isn't real. Hungarian Santa. <laughs> My aunt really didn't like it. She wanted us to believe in these stories. She wanted us to believe in, in the idea of good and evil and the idea that everything is simple. But why do, why do parents get so upset when they find out that their kids don't believe in Santa anymore? Like, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> did you think Santa was going to spontaneously manifest at some point in their childhood so they wouldn't find out you're a fucking liar? <laughs> What is the age as well? What's the age when they should find out that Santa isn't real? They're always like, oh, he's too young, he's too innocent. When's the age? I assume as a parent you don't want to think about it too much, but it's before they bang. You, <laughs> you know, I assume you want your kid to bang someone at some point. So they go into the chemist and they, and they buy whatever it is, the protection that they're going to get, and they get it and they get a little pamphlet, uh, which goes, one, no means no. Two, maybe probably means no. Three, Santa isn't real. <laughs> Everyone's first sexual encounter is just, what? <laughs> it's a weird thing. Uh, you look back over your life uh, and, and you realise that you had a strange life. I've got the Jewish, Buddhist, Catholic. What is that? I've got all of the shit. I've got the neuroses of the Jews. I've got the guilt of the Catholics. But I am at one with it. <laughs> I have all of the rage in my blood of centuries of oppression, but I don't like hurting people's feelings. I'm like, eat a dick, I hope it's delicious. <laughs> I was overseas and I found out some stereotypes about Australians and I don't like stereotypes and I think some of them are not true. First of all, that we are very laid back. <laughs> 
Second of all, that we are very racist. <laughs> Come on, if you're going to be racist, you might as well be laid back about it, am I right? <laughs> I think we are actually pretty laid back racists. We're pretty equal opportunity racists. We have a sweet spot for racism. It's whoever's come most recently before they've made delicious enough restaurants yet. That is our sweet spot. We do maintain an ongoing sort of uh, low boil of racism for our indigenous people. There's a bit of discomfort there. Uh, it is going to get a little bit more uncomfortable from here. Uh, can I just get... Are you okay for it to get more uncomfortable? Yes. Round of applause if you want it to be just, like, safe. Round of applause if you want it more uncomfortable. Yes. The way Australians, uh, white Australians, treat our Indigenous people is, uh, like... Have you ever fucked someone over so badly you can never look at them again? <laughs> that is... <laughs> there is that tension, that Melbourne tension. <laughs> I had a lady in Adelaide go, that's not okay. And I was like, why not? She said, because it makes me feel bad. <laughs> I was like, no, no, sweetheart. The target of that joke is not the indigenous people of Australia. It's you. <laughs> but I have an uncomfortable thing uh, to tell you about how I feel, um, which is I spent a bunch of time doing women's education in the Middle East. And you can't help your gut reactions, but I realized that I... I have this reaction, the hijab makes me slightly uncomfortable. It's very hot. <laughs> no, no, that's a cop out. Genuinely, it makes me slightly uncomfortable. Be don't get me wrong, it is not more uncomfortable than I feel about push-up bras. It's about the same level of discomfort as when I see a woman with uh, breast implants or fake eyelashes or Something like high heels. I admire the appetite for risk of a high heel on an unstable surface. That is a, every step is a roll of the dice, slash your ankle. <laughs> but it's just like, of course, wear what you want, do what you want with your body. But there's a lot of shit about how a woman should look that's gone into that. And that's what makes me feel uncomfortable. And on both ends of the spectrum, it looks a little bit silly. One end of the spectrum, you look like a badly drawn cartoon of an accident in a balloon factory. The other end of the spectrum, you look like you're constantly looking through a set of curtains. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> that is just a visual gag. That is 100% a visual gag. There is a noise that happens in Melbourne, particularly where half the audience just clenches its butt. <laughs> like, of course, wear what you want. Of course, do what you want. <laughs> We have to talk about uncomfortable things and this is my way of doing it because I can't do conflict. You know, I have so many conversations with my friend David. Yes, David, women are people. But we, we have to have those conversations because otherwise you're just going, oh yeah, just go off and educate yourself. You're just assuming that they're going to have the same gut feeling as you that you're sending them out to educate themselves on the internet. Have you, have you met the internet? <laughs> You're going to send them out to Twitter and 4chan and Reddit and assume that when they find the truth, the little light will go off in their head and they will suddenly realise that, that everything that you think is true is true. There's no point in human history at which we have ever been equal. Equality is not natural. We have to fight for it. You can't just think that everyone else is like you. And I was at a funeral. I was at a funeral, it was a, a family funeral, and it was all the people who I hadn't seen for years and years and years. People I hadn't seen since I was 10 or 11 or 12, since my mum got really sick and they all sort of drifted away like dandelions on the wind. 
And it was a family funeral and, and my mum was dead, so I went with dad to represent her. He's very proper, my dad, he knows what's right. And we went to the funeral and it was, a, it was a lovely, it was so lovely to see, it was like, it was so wonderful to see these people. It was so much fun. It was maybe too much fun for a funeral. <laughs> you know, it was like one of those hippie funerals, one of those happy funerals. They had bubble blowers, they had jumping. You know, I just did all, you know, I thought it was fine. I'm not going to tell them it's the wrong way to mourn. It felt like the wrong way to mourn, but I'm not going to start a fight. That's not what I do. I don't start a fight. And uh, so I just did the funeral stuff. You know, I went on the jumping castle. I met the clown. <laughs> I watched the magician. I ate a cupcake. And uh, after a while, I was done. I'd seen everybody. I'd said hello to everybody. I'd given my condolences. And I tapped my dad on the shoulder and I said, I'm, I'm going to leave if you're ready. And he said, I haven't seen Sue yet. Do you remember Sue? Mm -hmm. With the whoosh. <laughs> and I said, OK, um, I'll, I'll, I'll wait outside. And my dad went through the funeral and he found, he found Sue. Uh, he sought her out. He drew her out of the drumming circle. <laughs> and she stood up and she looked at my dad and she said, we don't like you. You're patriarchal. You're self-righteous. You're not welcome in this family anymore. I'd like you to leave. And my dad said, I was just gone. leaving. And he walked out. I don't ever see my dad show much emotion in his face. He's very proper, he's very calm, he's very Buddhist, he's very old school. But when he walked out of that funeral, I could tell that something was wrong because he was white. I hadn't seen him look that shocked since mum had died. And I said, what happened? And he told me. And I spend my whole life feeling uncertain. I'm, I'm never sure if I'm right or wrong. I'm never sure if I am a particle or a wave. I've never gone into a fight without a smile on my face. And in that moment, I was so certain, down to the electrons in my body. I felt like the emperor of the universe. I felt as furiously certain as I imagine people on Facebook feel all the time. <laughs> so I, uh, I gave my dad my bag and I rolled up my sleeves <laughs> and I walked back into the funeral. I thought, I know what's happened here. Sue is a wonderful, nice lady. She lives in a wonderful, nice world where you can solve a problem with a song, where you can blow on a dandelion and make a wish. And that's easy. It's easy to see my dad as a villain in that situation because my dad is not fun. My dad is not nice. He's not easy. He's just always good. But Sue hadn't seen that. Of course she hadn't seen that. She hadn't seen how hard he worked, how much he stuck by us, how much he looked after my mum day after day after day when things were really hard. And Sue hadn't seen that because Sue hadn't been there. I hadn't seen any of these people since I was 10 or 11 or 12 since my mum got really sick. And they couldn't solve that with a song, and they, they just had to drift off. And I thought, you know what happens when you blow on a dandelion and make a wish, Sue? Nothing. Less dandelion. More dandelions eventually, I guess. <laughs> I thought, you know what, Sue? Camels are fucking adorable. <laughs> Her real name isn't Sue, by the way. It's Susan. <laughs> so I stood in front of her, this woman, this big hero of my childhood, and I regretted every time I'd ever dodged a fight, every time I'd ever avoided conflict because it meant I had no practice. And I stood in front of her, and I put my hands behind my back, <laughs> and I said, I'd like you to apologize to my father, please. <laughs> Thank you.
is the final episode of the Alice Fraser trilogy, written and performed by Alice Fraser. My dad's voice was voiced by my dad, Michael Fraser, and Bryce Halliday was the doctor. Susan is a real person, but her name isn't actually Susan. Dave is a real person, and his real name is actually Dave. Produced and sound engineered by Bryce Halliday, executive producer Tom Wright.